Well, tonight I want to speak somewhat on the Bible being inspired of God. We have in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And uh, of course Christianity is the religion of the book, this book, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament and New Testament. Of course the foundation of all our belief, all our practice as Christians in the church and personally and all our hope and of course all our understanding is found in the word of God. This is, we believe, a divine revelation and of course there is much proof of the inspiration of the word of God, much proof also of its authority and sufficiency. But I don't want tonight to speak so much of the theology of the inspiration of scripture, but I want to look at some of the attributes of scripture, some of the characteristics of the word of God that make us uh, feel that this is indeed the word of God. They're not always uh, clinical proofs, but of course put them all together and they are very strong and very powerful. And we have uh, on top of that our theological uh, understanding and arguments as to why uh, the Bible is indeed the inspired word of God. So I really just have a list that I want to think of here tonight of the characteristics, the attributes of the word of God. And we start uh, in a, a somewhat obscure way uh, to speak of its obviousness. The obviousness of the scripture being the word of God. Man needs revelation. Man uh, needs revelation and only God can supply that revelation of certain important things. We know and we understand that we have a certain revelation from nature. As we look around this universe in which we dwell, we understand from nature. uh, We have a revelation from it uh, concerning the power of God, the beauty of God somewhat and uh, the design of God and therefore his wisdom and his understanding of course these things come from our looking at the natural world that we see round about us we also have a revelation from our conscience our conscience tells us that there is a God our conscience tells us that there is a moral law that law is somewhat written in our hearts of course our conscience over the years uh, as unbelievers uh, was uh, greatly weakened But by conversion, it's strengthened once again. And we have this revelation in our hearts that God is real. But that's not enough. We don't uh, receive enough from the natural world or from the conscience uh, for many things that we need to understand and that God would put our way. There is a great need for a further revelation. Of course, that revelation came supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ as he came into this world and revealed God to us. And in him uh, dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we beheld our God, God with us, Emmanuel. But also, of course, uh, even uh, more so, uh, a written revelation of these things. For we were not there when our Saviour walked this earth. And so we need a written revelation. And so, if God is real, and if God has made us, and if God has placed us in this world for a purpose then there is a sort of obviousness about this scripture. It's absolutely obvious that we need it and that without it, we might even accuse God of leaving us in the dark concerning ourselves and what he has done and salvation and so many other other things. And so we see from the scripture, there is an obviousness about it. 
And then there's something very, very different <clears throat> as we think of the scripture and its characteristics, the attributes of scripture. And that is, of course, something that we delight in. And that is its freshness, the freshness of scripture, like the widow that took care of Elijah and uh, uh, the cruise of oil never ran dry. Here is the scripture as well. Never exhausted. There's never a sameness about the scripture. It's never diminished in its power to needy souls, but it is ever fresh to save souls. Also, of course, for believers, it has new delights each time that we come to it. And uh, we often say there's yet more light to break forth from his words, uh, his word, most books. You might get in one go. But the greatest of biblical scholars, people like John Calvin, spent their whole life poring over the scriptures and writing on it to the help of others. Well, of course, older folk know this best. And uh, they have looked at the scriptures over decades and still find that this is the love of their life, to pour over the scriptures. And it comes to them in a freshness so often. Well, of course, we know that thousands upon thousands of books and commentaries have been written on the Bible. We know that uh, there are so many hundreds, maybe even thousands probably, of seminaries around the world that spend their whole time studying the word of God, some better than others, of course. But of course, the Bible is a mine of wealth. No other book could be studied in such a way with such, uh, can I say, ferocity in such, uh, in such a lengthy way with such a wideness uh, of its subjects. Well, the Bible has such a freshness uh, to it. And uh, here we believe we have heavenly treasure. Well, it is as a spring of water. As the Holy Spirit is, so is the Word of God. And this never runs dry. We might run dry, but the Word of God never runs dry. Only the infinite mind of God could create such a wonderful book that could have a freshness for an individual over 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years as they study such a Word of God. It is uh, a book that is ever fresh. And then, of course, we often speak about the honesty of Scripture. Never could a human have written this book. This is one of the main uh, criticisms that's brought uh, about the Word of God. Well, of course, it was written by men. I often think when people say, well, the Bible is a human, uh, of human construction and the humans read it, well... When you hear someone say that, you can uh, be pretty sure they've never looked at the Bible in any great way, never studied it over some length of time, because the more and more you read the Bible, the more more you realise this couldn't be a human invention, never could it possibly have been. Well, in the Bible, you see it's honesty, and uh, you never read of the bravery of Israel extolled, in the Old Testament pages and victory is never regarded as the outcome of their courage or military genius all ascribed to Jehovah. Of course, he is the one that brings them the victories, but their defeats, their failures, their backsliding, their idolatry. Well, that is always redound, uh, put down to those individuals and even the most famous heroes of scripture have their great sins Aaron with his golden calf Solomon with his many illicit wives David with his great adultery and murder Noah 
drunk in his tent and Abraham uh, uh, using deceit. Well, a forged history would never record anything but the virtue of its heroes. Especially we see how uh, the very people of God in the Old Testament are so full often of idolatry and hostility towards God. And yet the Jews would never dream of changing that scripture. There was such an honesty about it. There was no cover-up. And in the New Testament, it's the same, the treatment of the Messiah. Peter, who some uphold as the greatest apostle, well, we know his rightful place. But Peter, Peter, the great denier of the Saviour. And Paul, the great persecutor of the church. These did not uh, write these things of themselves uh, in a, a dishonest way. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to write these things in an honest fashion. And so we look through the scripture and as we read it, we see the honesty of these words. And then we think of its character, or if you like, the character of what is taught, which is amazing, amazingly broad. This is a book This is a scripture that teaches us about God. Of course, about God, that he is eternal, that he is infinite, that he is sovereign over the universe that he has made, that he is the creator, that he is omnipotent and omniscient, that he is present, that he is immutable and he is the judge of all the earth, and he is just and righteous. And the Bible teaches us that he is absolutely holy, and far beyond man's conception of any God, uh, any God that could be invented. Of course, the Bible is amazingly deep and profound. And of course, wide in its uh, teaching of God himself. The theology of God in the scripture goes way beyond anything that man could invent. And of course, the Bible also is about man. And it shows us and it teaches that man is unique. He's on his own. In the, what's called the animal kingdom, of course, he is above the animal. And the Bible condemns man. Man would never write his own uh, book and condemn himself. But the Bible condemns man. It, it never praises his wisdom or his achievements. And uh, it doesn't teach that we are uh, evolving heavenwards, but that we are uh, those that, whose right, very righteousness is as filthy rags. The Bible teaches that we are lost and that we are sinners and that we are totally depraved in our heart and mind and will. Each part of our soul is corrupt. And uh, the Bible is uh, indeed in its teaching, its character of what is taught about man shows that we are hell deserving. And the teaching is deeply humiliating. It teaches that there is none righteous, no, not one, and that there is no fear of God before our eyes. No man could write these things no man could see that that was the case this is God's word and of course in its character of what is talked about the world man says the world is getting better more civilized the bible says it's getting worse and worse the world hates God is what the bible teaches us and it teaches us that the wisdom of this world if there were such a thing is foolishness with God, God's wisdom is far above uh, those things that are taught uh, by philosophy in this world. We are told not to love the world. Well, where else would we have heard such a thing? Not to love the world when our whole instinct is to love this world in which we dwell and the, the, the things of this world. And it teaches us that the whole world lieth in wickedness. 
and in the hands of the evil one, and that Satan is the God of this world. Where else would we have found that out, except by this wonderful revelation, and about uh, what is taught, and of course, it's teaching about sin. It's unique. Man sees sin as unfortunate. Man sees sin as perhaps only great crime, or of something that is of little consequences. But we find in the word of God that sin is taught as rebellion against God. It is the breaking of his law, transgressing his law. It is uh, the coming short of his glory, so that we could never enter his glory without salvation. We see that the Bible teaches that sin is the thing that will damn us. The thing that sent Christ to the cross. This is God's word. This is what is taught. And of course, what is taught about salvation. Wonderful. Where would we have found this? In uh, the created world or in our consciences even. But we find here in the Bible the plan of God's salvation that it is all of God. Who dreamed what God would do to save sinners? Only God's word can tell us of that wonderful coming of the Saviour to die in the place of his people and save them from their sins. This is the character of this word of God. There's nothing else like it. And then, of course, we have to talk, when we think of the attributes of the word of God, we have to think of its fulfilment, the fulfilment of the word of God, of the scriptures. Man's attempts at predicting the future, of course, they all fail. They're often disastrous, whether it be the economists thinking of the future or the politicians or the educationists. They tell us what's going to happen in the future, but it's all disastrous or it doesn't amount to much at all. But man, well, he is not able to predict hardly anything of the future with precision. How do we account then for thousands? Told hundreds of years before, in minute accuracy, exactly. Many uh, together, happening at the same time. The thing that you would think uh, could never ever happen. Well, of course, this is the Holy Spirit's word. And of course, God knew exactly what was going to happen. And he planned it and he superintended it to all turn out according to his glorious will. And of course, we see that the whole of the word of God is fulfilled and still some to be fulfilled. The stats actually of this are incredible. And a number of people have have, uh, even got some books together to add them up and to see what, have happened, what has happened even if we just were to think of the Saviour and all that was predicted of him in the Old Testament uh, hundreds of years before he came of his family and of his tribe and of his being born of the Virgin and the very town he would be uh, born in and the treatment he would receive and the words, the actual words that he would say such as uh, Psalm 2 uh, uh, the words that would be said against him there on the cross the details of his life the zeal that he showed that was noted by the apostles and the death that he died all predicted and his burial and his resurrection and his uh, ascension And of course the church that he would found and the salvation that he would bring and that he was God's son. Well, who could have written such a thing but God himself? This is of course God's word seen in its fulfilment. Then of course we have its wonderful types. There's never been a book 
that has had so many pictures in it. Of course, people say, do you believe the Bible literally? <laughs> and we say, well, it depends what you mean. There's so much in the Bible that isn't literal, but it's picture. And of course, they were literally made, as in the tabernacle and the temple, and the people actually live that are types of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were pictures also. The Lord Jesus Christ said, search the scriptures. These are they that testify of me. Christ, of course, the key to all the scriptures. The Old Testament foreshadowed the new, especially Christ and his person and his work. So often in what we call types, pictures, figures of him who was to come from Noah's Ark, which we know in the New Testament is the picture of those running into it for salvation all the way through, of course, to Moses' tabernacle and each part of the furniture and even the high priest, all pictures of Christ. We often dwell on the details of these things and that he is the Lamb of God, pictured there at the time of the Passover. So the blood is shed and where there is no remi- uh, shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so he is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world and the whole sacrificial system in its detail in the early chapters of Leviticus, wonderful types of the Christ. It couldn't just be one sacrifice that would picture it because it was so involved what the saviour did upon the cross and then of course there are the types who were people themselves the josephs who are so persecuted by uh, his brethren and then saves them all wonderful picture of christ moses moses of course the prophet and moses of course the priests as he brings god's word to the people and of course the king as he rules over that people he is of course the wonderful picture of the lord jesus christ and joshua the deliverer of the people that takes them in to the promised land as our savior will take us in to heaven solomon in all his glory there of course picturing the glory of the lord jesus christ well the detail that we have in the Bible of these great types, even down to the tiniest details, as we have in the Garden of Eden, uh, the skins that covered Adam and Eve's nakedness, and Abel's sacrifice, which was accepted of God. So we have the types. And then the great uh, historical things that happened to Israel, which were the types as they were brought out of slavery of Egypt, to uh, the freedom of the promised land of course picturing the uh, slavery of sin and the uh, promised land of salvation and heaven that the Lord brings to his people wonderful types none of them perhaps exact but all that we need being put together amazing all not a made-up story but a true history planned and superintended by God and written down this is the word of God there's nothing like it in its types and figures and pictures and then of course we have to speak about its unity well we sometimes have some facts here and i'll just mention a few written on two continents in about three languages over 16 centuries the word of god was written written in tents in deserts in palaces and in dungeons written in danger and in times of joy written by judges kings priests prophets patriarchs primitive uh, uh, men and uh, uh, those that uh, were not uh, very uh, clever but brought the word of god prime ministers herdsmen 
scribes, soldiers, doctors, fishermen. Yet all the same, one systematic doctrine that they bring in all of their writings, which I say their writings, but of course superintended by the Lord as he inspired his word. Well, all the word of God with one code of ethics, one plan of salvation, one rule of faith. Well, about 40 men actually physically wrote down uh, the Bible, but the different parts of the scripture, but definitely one book. We don't think of the Bible as a library of books. It is one book, whole. Its unity is very clear. No other collection can be brought together like this. Some have tried to bring uh, together different people's writings, but it's hopeless. They've disagreed with each other so often. But uh, here we have in the word of God, one overriding spirit that wrote all these things. The one main theme that unifies through the word of God is the plan of redemption. And uh, uh, that uh, fact that God has uh, sent his son through that one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation is found. And that's true in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are no contradictions. Even the same events that we have in the gospel can be brought together. And where we can't uh, figure it out, we know that the Lord has his way. Well, we see the unity of the scripture. It is a one, uh, an amazing thing. And of course, we have to speak about the influence of the word of God. What a wonderful attribute that is of the scripture. Its influence, well, of course, it's worldwide. There is no other book that's had such an influence and of course, it's influenced so many other things. Uh, glorious music has been dedicated to things in the Bible, the wonderful poetry. Some reckon that our greatest uh, poem is Paradise Lost, written by our greatest poet, Milton. And uh, glorious there, based on the scripture. And then, of course, glorious paintings down the century. Well, we're not very happy with portrayals of Christ, of course, but many other paintings to do with uh, the glorious accounts that we have in Scripture by our greatest artists, very wonderful pictures, and of course sculptures also, but we must think of hymns. When you think of the whole body of poetry, um, poetry is a bit of a mystery to me personally. Uh, much poetry that I've tried to read, I've found very obscure. And you think to yourself, well, perhaps the poet himself understood what he was saying, but it takes an awful lot of people to try and work out what this poem actually means. But you come to the poetry of our hymn book, who has any real trouble? Maybe the odd word, maybe the odd line has a few, few people flummoxed and uh, they have to, what does exactly that mean? But generally speaking, we have our hymns and we sing them and we love them. And oh, they're so meaningful because they're based on scripture, scriptural doctrine, the influence of the word of God on our hymn writers has been marvellous and wonderful and the body of poetry found in our hymns really, you know, it excels any other sort of poetry that the world has ever known but then of course the influence of the world of God, word of God on the laws of countries international agreements the ethics of civilization. it's all come from the influence of the word of God and of course the wonderful missionary work to the heathen that was, of course, influenced by the word of God as it uh, has changed the world and changed people's hearts. And another thing that uh, people don't often think about, but you see, the word of God is the same for the Eskimo, the Indian, the Chinese, the Greek, the Turk, well, the African. Each of those 
when they're converted, or when they begin to see that this is the very word of God, each of them say, says, this is the word of God for me. It's not a cultural thing. It's not something for the white man. It's not something that uh, is, has been taken up by certain cultures and said, oh, this is great. But others have said, no, no, this isn't anything for us. All, uh, uh, all every uh, nation has come uh, in its uh, converted people. They love the word of God. And they've all identified with it. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, if you can say, the living word of God, he has been a saviour to all those. Even though he was a Jew, it hardly seems to matter. When it comes to the fact that he is my saviour, he loved me and he gave himself for me. And that's the same as the scripture. All see the word and see Christ as for them. Some books, of course, have some influence and some books have had some great influence. But for 2000 years, this book has continued to turn the world upside down. And then, of course, thousands upon thousands of people have been changed only by the word of God, its influence in their own personal lives. And then we have to think about its power, the power of the word of God, of the Bible. Some have been saved by just a verse, reading a verse. I'm just uh, looking just now at uh, uh, an email from the Trinitarian Bible Society and uh, there's an account of how uh, uh, just recently a certain gentleman's gone to glory but he was in the world he was uh, uh, in in car sales uh, very high up and he was going to give a a seminar uh, to uh, some of his colleagues concerning the situation in the uh, motor industry at that time. I'm not sure when it happened, but he was on the way and he passed the church and there was a text. And uh, I think the text said something like, be sure your sin will find you out, find you out. Or uh, I'm not sure whether it wasn't the other one that that said, um, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. But that sort of text, and it kept ringing in his mind and it kept agitating him, even when he was giving his lecture to his colleagues. And then afterwards he began to think about it. And uh, eventually he turned up at the church and he was saved. And he was uh, a very fine Christian for many, many years. And that was just by one verse. And we've often known the fact that it is just one verse that has changed people completely and certainly uh, begun uh, a journey, a spiritual journey to find the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the word of God. We have that uh, great story, don't we, of uh, Spurgeon when he was trying out uh, the acoustics in the Royal Agricultural Hall there at Islington when he was going to teach to t- uh, preach to 10,000 people and he, he just shouted out and there was a workman in the back of the building and he, I can't remember what the text was but he was powerfully uh, moved by that one word and uh, eventually was saved wow, marvellous, the power of the word of God either in times of revival when thousands of people have been influenced by the power of the word of God or when it's been quietly read by someone either unsaved and then they're saved or some saint has found the power of the word of God just quietly uh, in their own quiet time, so powerful, or the preaching of God's word on occasion has been very, very powerful to the soul of various people and the greatest of sinners has been saved by the power of the word of God. Whole towns and villages sometimes we often uh, think of Kidderminster and uh, how uh, uh, that great uh, preacher uh, came to them and uh, how he spoke to them the word of God and whereas when he came to the town uh, he found himself uh, amongst uh, people that were drunkards 
and uh, not God fearers at all, hardly anyone comes to church. And then, after uh, a number of years of preaching the word of God, well, he then saw the whole town change. Oh, the name has gone back from Baxter, Richard Baxter. And uh, marvelous how that whole uh, little town was changed by his word. So uh, that shows something of the power. Well, even whole nations have been rescued by the word of God and the power of God, certainly our own country. Before the evangelical revival uh, was uh, just uh, sunk in gin drinking in the same position as the folk in France just before the French Revolution. Well, they had their revolution and their bloodbath. But we had Whitfield and Wesley uh, preaching the gospel and thousands of people were saved. And that was the thing that saved our nation. Very, very powerful. What other book could comfort the hearts of martyrs at the stake and uh, in the prison and at death's door? Powerful. The word of God and in the storm and in the war, only God's word has such power. Other books can't touch people, perhaps move their emotions a bit, make them, make them weep in an emotional way. Well, we know that some writers are capable of that, but not as the Bible is powerful. And then we have to speak of the Bible's completeness. It's completeness. You see all these characteristics move us towards seeing that this must be the very word of God inspired by him. Well, the completeness of the word of God, it is finished. Not only was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ finished as he cried out on the cross, but the Bible, it is finished. Nothing else is needed. 2,000 years ago, this revelation of God came to completion. Well, there are many inventions and strides and discoveries and philosophies in history that people think take us forward. But this is all that is needed. The word of God. Nothing else is needed. No charismatic utterance. No more wisdom. No more to be revealed. Wonderful. All we need is the word of God. R.A. Torrey said, if every book in the world were destroyed except the Bible, not a single truth would be lost. We have all that we need in this word of God. It is complete. And of course, we have to speak of its indestructibility, <clears throat> its survival, if you like. During Bible ages, so often the word of God was nearly annihilated, as it were, nearly rid of completely, but never completely. Of course, the Lord always had his word. And uh, sometimes they just about found uh, a copy of the law there in the temple when hardly anyone had a scripture between them. Well, that was grand. The Lord watched over his word. It was indestructible. And of course, often in history, the Bible has become uh, the object of special hatred, of sometimes uh, authorities, there's been great persecution, all attempts to destroy the word of God. Why, when Tyndale's first edition of the New Testament came to London, the Bishop of London was all out to get every copy he could, he even paid a large sum of money to get every one so he could burn them at St Paul's Cross. Well, uh, we find that soon after that, Tyndale had his second edition, which was even better than the first one. So it was indestructible. Well, even the church has tried to destroy the word of God, the Roman Catholic Church in days gone by, tried to destroy it and to uh, disallow it, but that never happened, of course. Nowadays, we find, how do people try to destroy the word of God? Well, by error and by twisting it, by bad uh, translation, by calling it myth, by the teaching in schools and uh, modern views, and atheism, of course, all seeks to destroy the word of God. But the Bible says itself that it shall abide forever. And of course, it has. 
And we can speak about its precision, about its jots and tittles, where we have seed instead of seeds and things like that. Things quoted by Christ and by the apostles, where uh, the actual precision of what is said is so, so important. <clears throat> well, the Bible is inspired of God. It's proved by these things coming together, if you like, its freshness, its honesty, its character, what is taught. Well, its fulfilment, its types, its unity, its influence, its power, its completeness and indestructibility and its precision. All these things come together. They gang up, as it were, and show us that the Bible is inspired of God. But friends, I've got another list here. Uh, if you thought I was coming to an end, but I just mentioned these things, the characteristics of Scripture. Well, of course, it's hammer blows. It's hammer blows, how it strikes the heart and strikes the mind. So that person cannot come away from these things without saying, I must look into it. So it has its hammer blows. And of course, it has its great comforts. Or for us that have been so down and distressed, and for those that have been persecuted, all the comforts of the Word of God. And then, of course, it's stirrings up those that have been down and their feeble knees and feeling things are coming to an end and so uh, distressed, even spiritually. But the word of God has come and it stirred us up to new things and to energy and to being brought back to the Lord. The scripture is uh, something wonderful in that it stirs us up. And then, of course, I believe there is its excitement. Some of the things we read in the scripture that's so exciting. Well, of course, even as youngsters, we've read of David and Goliath. So exciting. And Joshua's great victories, of course. And of Moses' uh, victory with the people and coming out of Egypt. So exciting. But of course, the excitement of the Gospels as well as the lepers are cleansed and the blind see. It has an excitement all its own. And an excitement even in its ordinary teaching of our behaviour. Or oh, if only we could live like this. We get the excitement of the word of God. And then, of course, it's sheer wonder. The wonder of the word of God. We read a passage or we have someone preach to us or we come to a new understanding of something and we just feel we wonder. It's amazing. It's amazing that God should deal with me like that. It's amazing that God should do that. It's amazing that this is how the Lord works it all out. It's amazing that in six days that God created the heavens and the earth. It's sheer wonder of it all. And then, of course, it is, of course, so thought-provoking. So often we're thinking. And why are we thinking? Well, because the Word of God has got us thinking. We've heard something or we've read something and we wonder and we think. And it's so thought-provoking. Nothing else stirs our minds like this does. We have to think about certain things, but very often they're very mundane. They're very ordinary. And, of course, they're proper and it's right. And some people, of course, in academia have to think deeply about things. But we ordinary people, we read the Word of God and it's so thought-provoking. It uh, makes us ask so many questions and makes us hurry and scurry into the Word of God or to those that have taught us in the past and through books and commentaries and we find out the answers to these questions. The Bible is so thought-provoking, unlike any other book. And, of course... We must speak about the nobility of Scripture. What I mean by that is it's not crude. While it speaks of very horrible things sometimes, it speaks of things that we would, in one sense, rather not think about at all. But there's a nobility about the Word of God. 
it's so uh, it's so gloriously put. Its terminology even is so so wonderful and discreet and chaste in the way it puts things. And so as we read the word of God, even as we read it out loud, there's a nobility about it, something noble and wonderful and high and holy. And then, of course, there's the beauty of the word of God. There's the beauty of Christ as we see him written off in the scripture and portrayed there, but the beauty of the Christian life, the beauty of uh, even the doctrines and the beauty of the whole system of theology as it all comes together and it all fits, especially as we think sometimes of the doctrines of grace. There's a beauty in the way all these things just fit together so finely and beautifully and we can see them. No, it's lovely. And then very uh, briefly, well, of course, this scripture, it's so faith-inducing. It produces faith. We read it and the more and more we read it, the more and more we believe. One of the things that I always assure myself with, as I think, are you a believer? You question yourself, you examine yourself. Do you believe the Lord? And you read a part of the scripture and say, I believe every single word. This is what I believe. And as we read the Bible, well, it produces faith as we read it. And we say, this is what I believe. I love this. And I wouldn't let this go for anything at all. And so lastly, of course, this scripture, it is love provoking love to our saviour love to our god love to his word love to his truth love to his people oh of course this is what it does what other book could produce such love this book does it it's so love provoking well friends i said this wouldn't be a theological study there are other things that we could talk of tonight to show us that the word of god is inspired and of course, it has all the authority of the word of God. Of course, that's true. And that's right. These things, these are the things we delight in. These are the characteristics of the inspired word of God. These are the attributes of this Bible that we love to come to from day to day and from week to week as we hear it preached. And all that it might so ring in our hearts even tonight that we always want to get back to the very word of God. Amen. Amen.